podcast is brought to you by America Online, now hiring designers in Silicon Valley, New York City, and the Washington, D.C. area. Help us set the standard for what happens next in the web. Send your resume to uijobs at aim.com today. Looking for inspiration and ideas from other colleagues from all over the world? Be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. At the 2007 IA Summit in Las Vegas, Christina Woodkey, founder of Boxes and Arrows, sat down to talk with web accessibility and design expert Derek Featherstone about considering accessibility as a foundational part of the design process. By doing so, he argues, the software we build will have better structure and be inherently more useful for everyone who uses it. This interview is a must-listen if you want to learn about this emergent part of our practice that started as a grassroots movement in developer communities. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. I'm Christina Woodkey of Boxes and Arrows, and I'm sitting here talking with Derek Featherstone. I don't even know the name of your company. My company is called Further Ahead. Further Ahead. I like that very much. So, Derek, you're here talking to folks about accessibility. From what I hear, your workshop was fairly well attended, pretty crowded in there. So um, tell me, what, what is it about IA and accessibility? What do they? I wouldn't have guessed they had a lot to do with each other. Yeah, I think I think for me, the way I see it is that they're they're both related because they're both part of overall user experience. And a lot of people look at accessibility as this little thing that's on its own, but if you do accessibility on its own and treat it as its own component, it, you kind of it becomes like a second class citizen, and so it's not integrated into everything else that we're doing. Uh, and and when you treat it as something that's uh, just kind of like the checklist, right? That's what everybody thinks of when they think accessibility is these checklists of things that we need to do. Uh, it, it really becomes something that is removed from the overall design process and the build process and understanding it as part of user experience and how people actually use the web. What are some of the uh, the bad consequences of having it outside of the design consequences? Outside the design process, sorry. Well, I think the the biggest... Uh, problem that I've seen is that it just gets addressed too late in the process. So I'll have clients sometimes come to me two weeks before they're ready to launch a site and they know it needs to be accessible. And then I'll go through and I'll do an assessment of it. We'll do user testing with it and we'll go back and say, you know, there's a lot of things that need to be fixed. Let's make this happen. And the site either can't go live or it goes live with, with, you know, a lot of accessibility issues in it. Mm-hmm. So it, that's sort of the, the most significant problem is that it gets dealt with too late and then it costs money because you have to go back and retrofit and retrofitting a site is never fun uh, and it's a it can be a lengthy process especially depending on how far along you are and how complicated your framework is what you what you're doing on the back end in terms of code you might not be able to change things as easily as if you dealt with it up front and had it you know had accessibility taken into account at the prototype stage uh, so it's that's the number one issue, I think, is that it just it, it it becomes an afterthought, and then it's seen as this bolt-on that you know you you, you just end up with an inaccessible product because of it. So it's an old adage of measure twice and cut once, yeah, or measure three or four times and yeah. cut once. Okay. So what happens to those sites where accessibility problems uh, go live? What are what happens when you you aren't as careful as you should be? Well, I mean, it, you really, you know, depending on who you are, you kind of hope and pray that that you don't run into any issues where people, you know, in, in Canada, for example, we have sites that, you know, may have accessibility problems that are federal government sites, 
and people will launch you know actions they'll bring that to say our Canadian Human Rights Commission mm. and they will you know say there's this service that's offered online that I can't access because it's you know it's fundamentally inaccessible there's all these issues with it so that works its way up the up the food chain through a, through a, a process to get resolved uh, so that's certainly one of the dangers in in Canada in you know here in the states it's a little bit different um, although you know, very similar. It's not a human rights commission, but ultimately, Section 508 here in the states is there to guarantee, or at least provide for a minimum of accessibility. And so, I, I'm not sure if people uh, launch um, complaints uh, with the government, or if it's more dealt with in a in a civil uh, manner, as we see all kinds of suits these days against. Um, uh, companies in in Texas and the, the National Federation of the Blind launching their uh, their suit against Target, um, and I think the one in Texas was uh, Oracle. Um, all this legislation exists, and if you're not accessible, then you've got you know you kind of get caught with your pants down. So lawsuits and government action is a stick. Is there a carrot as well to encourage people to think about accessibility? I've heard some people talk about. Um, like good code and good accessibility mean good search engine results. Can you give us some uh, some advantages? Yeah, I think it, I mean that certainly is one of the advantages. Um, there is a danger though in in that being the motivation for it. Uh, and I think the biggest carrot is is that you know we we are doing this to help people with disabilities use the web. Um, I, I see the web as, and I think a lot of people see the web as this great. Uh, tool to level the playing field. Uh, having the ability to be, you know, somebody that's, say, blind or, or is, uh, is, say, confined to a wheelchair, they have the ability to shop online just like anybody else can. Uh, there, there, it is a, a, an attempt or hopefully a, a mechanism to get that level playing field and it just, it, it, unfortunately that's not reality. So, you know, the biggest carrot for me is knowing that people with disabilities can actually use the web the way it was intended to be used. Um, and I know that one of the things that I've always done that's worked really well is for people that want, that don't necessarily know about accessibility or don't know, you know, some of the advantages of it, just doing user testing with them or having them observe user testing of uh, some of the frustrations of using, you know, even their own websites, um, getting business owners and, and people that are, are driving groups, the owners of websites to to see it for themselves and to hear it for themselves for themselves really makes a, a big difference. So that's the carrot that I mm -hmm. like to use, although there are definitely, you know, benefits from uh, from a search engine optimization perspective. The the foundation of accessibility really is that structured semantic underlying data and that's kind of the same you know that the that's the same for search engine optimization so the two of those fit really nicely together um, you know there's other things too like lightweight lightweight pages makes it easier to download things like that um, so th those are all these extra side benefits that may help people that want to browse on a mobile device um, but I, I don't see those as being uh, certainly, th those might be like 10 carat, and hmm. and people with disabilities is like a 24 carat. That's 24 carat carat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like that. So well, um, luckily you have all those carrots because I've noticed that business are not always altruistic as we might want them to be. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it, it's something where 
You know, I, I'm I'm fortunate in that all the, the clients that I have and that I work with, I've never really had anybody that's that I've had to sell it to them uh, and use those other carrots, mm-hmm. uh, especially when I'm developing sites and building sites. This is just the way we do it now. I, I don't think I could even make an inaccessible website. You know, I mean, I, it's just this is the way that we build sites now. And that's just how it is. There's nothing to really sell uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. So. So you mentioned that you have more work than you can actually possibly do right now, and that uh, you know you've been doing this for a while. Do you think that there's an increased awareness of the value of accessibility? Um, do you think more people are are worried about it or caring about it than in the past? Yeah, I think I think some of the visibility of some of these these lawsuits is having an impact. I think there are there is more awareness of it in general. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, there's kind of a web standards movement among developers that just kind of keeps growing. And so there's a group of people that are just out there that are just doing this because it's the right way to do things. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is kind of a, it's, you know, it's this grassroots movement that is helping to spread that that uh, vision of accessibility into organizations all over the place. So I think it's definitely, uh, people people are definitely more aware of it these days. So um, earlier mentioned uh, lightweight pages. Um, are there some other sort of core precepts of of accessibility that you could share? Uh, I think. Well, I mean, the the absolute biggest one is is structure. Um, having that structure there enables uh, assistive devices to understand a little bit more about what the page actually is. And what do you mean by structure? Um, just you know, structuring your page so that you you have you, the you HTML, use yeah the, okay yeah so using using the right HTML for the job mm-hmm. so having headings lists block quotes using you know, what the age old sins of of um, of HTML was we want to indent our indent our text so we're going to wrap it all in a block quote or maybe two or three block quotes to bring both of the margins in we just don't do that anymore because block quote actually has meaning and there there is a certain semantic to it a screen reader will announce that a block quote is a quote mm-hmm. so we if we have three nested block quotes together to indent something on a page it just doesn't make any sense and that's extra noise for a screen reader mm-hmm. uh, so you know i mean that's just one example we want to make sure that we're using the tools that even though html isn't a, an overly semantically rich language we want to use what we do have to its best so using Using lists properly, uh, unordered lists and ordered lists, using tables properly, using headings, block quotes, all these different elements that we have for the right for the right reasons. Okay. So, um, are there uh, other other ways to to make uh, pages a little more accessible? Yeah, I think one of the one of the things that I've been pushing. Um, pushing a lot of people to do, or, or to at least consider, is to think, uh, think of it from an interaction perspective. You know, and, and one of them is one of the ways to do that is looking at the visual languages that we create with our designs. We use color, and we use iconography, and we use um, things like rhythm and flow, and you know, similarity in size, um, similarity in color. We use all that that visual display to convey meaning to people that can see. So how can we take that and translate that into something that is is useful for a screen reader? So if we're talking about, um, you know, things being the same size and ha- having the same sort of weight, 
then we should do that that same thing in the underlying HTML. So just taking that extra step to think about what you're trying to visually communicate and thinking about ways to to communicate that in in other ways uh, to you know to to people that may not be able to see. Um, another example is you know we might have um, sections of a page where we'll have primary navigation across the top and secondary navigation uh, down the side. We can visually see that based on the position on the page, these links are different from those links. And so there are other ways to try and convey that. You can, might include, say, before your secondary navigation, you might include a hidden heading that says, in this section, mm. um, so that that you can distinguish from the, the primary navigation links from, from the secondary, just so that it makes it a little bit more clear as to what what all these different components are. So taking that visual, translating into something that's that's meaningful in some other way to somebody that's consuming a page through through uh, auditory means. So um, with the penetration of uh, broadband to a, a much wider audience, we're seeing a lot more use of Flash and Ajax and streaming video. Um, what sort of uh, opportunities or challenges are you seeing these days? Uh, it's interesting because there's a lot of... Uh, you know, a lot of belief that, well, because we now have this broadband penetration, we can do whatever we want. Um, one of the main issues that I've seen with that is the use of Flash, and I think Flash is great. I think it's got uh, some really, um, some great uses on the web, but one of the things that happens is Flash developers don't necessarily know all the accessibility features that are built into Flash. Uh, it's not really well known, but Flash has, in some ways, better accessibility support than technologies like uh, using things like Ajax. Wow. Um, that's, and that's been there for some time. I mean, you know, Macromedia and now Adobe with Flash, they've been putting a lot of time and effort into making that accessible. And that's, they've got, right now at this point, they've got better programmatic control over talking to, say, screen readers and through that accessibility architecture that's built into operating systems. There's there's better support there for things that for rich internet applications than than there are in Ajax right now. So that, that's that's one of the big things is you know with the proliferation of Flash, people don't even necessarily know that that it can be made accessible. the The old story was well, it's Flash, so it's it can't be accessible. Yeah. Um, but that's you know that's not true. There's there's a lot of things in Flash that can be made accessible, uh, and the principles are pretty similar to what what we have in HTML. You need to enable keyboard access. So, all your buttons that you have in a Flash movie to say, say with your online video, like things at YouTube or Google Video or wherever, um, all your all your buttons that you use to control, they need to have the ability to take the keyboard focus so that you can tab through them. You also need to label them so that they don't just get announced as button uh, mm -hmm. by a screen reader because button, if you have five things that are all announced as button. It's not clear what it is. Button, button, who's got the button? Exactly, exactly. So that, that's that's a big challenge right now is is um, encouraging other people. There are some really brilliant people working on Flash accessibility, um, but there's it's just not proliferating. It needs to, to we need to continue to get that word out that you can make Flash accessible. Mm. Well, you know, Ajax is the flavor of the week, <laughs> and you know, Flickr flipped completely out from Flash to Ajax, and mm -hmm. we're seeing a lot of other new Web 2.0 items in Ajax. What should be, people be thinking about is, you know, as you sit down to knock out the uh, the next most amazing uh, project ever. That's a that's a good question. I mean, in terms of accessibility, mm -hmm. um, 
I know I've said this a lot now, but the the underlying structure is almost everything. That gives you your your framework. Um, so having good solid HTML, which most people that are building, uh, you know, new applications are these days. Mm -hmm. uh, really, what what they need to do to take it to that next level is think of the interaction and think of that AJAX component um, as as that final enhancement rather than the first enhancement. And a lot of people think about it. They they start creating a new a uh, new application, and the very first thing they do is say, okay, this is going to be AJAX-driven. Um, if we can avoid people thinking that way, let's think of the core the core structure first. What are we actually trying to do in terms of our interaction? And then how do we enhance what we've already got with AJAX? Now, that so, does sound like information architecture and interaction design to me very much. It, exactly. And, and you know, the, the biggest thing that people don't ask is should we even be using AJAX for this in the first place? Hmm. Uh, and that question just doesn't get asked enough. Um, you know, there, there's uh, lots of examples out there where there's really, you know, there, names? no, <laughs> I'm not even thinking of, of any applications in particular, but there are situations where the, the assumption has been we need AJAX to do this, but all these things that are happening in this Web 2.0 sphere um, that are all around tagging and social interaction and social networking, we don't need AJAX for any of that. Um, you know those those ideas are really just concepts. It's nothing to do with the technology. Mm -hmm. um, we can use AJAX to make those uh, concepts come to fruition in a much more uh, usable manner. And, and in some ways, it's almost more accessible to use uh, some AJAX type techniques because it the the fact that the page doesn't refresh means we don't lose all that context and have to wait for that page to reload. So it's quite possible that using AJAX to expand the nodes of a tree in a, in a file view, for example, might, might actually be more accessible because it, it's easier to maintain context. People don't have to go through that refresh. So there's, there's a lot of interesting things to think about that we just have, we've only really just started exploring. Okay. So um, let's say, you know, I am that little company, um, and I, let's say I've built it. I didn't think about accessibility. What should I be looking for just to see if I'm going to be in deep trouble with uh, the law? Is there any quick way I can go through and see if I've got big trouble or little trouble? There, I mean, there are online checkers that can, can do sort of a quick and dirty analysis for you. Uh, the biggest problem with it right now is that a lot of accessibility, even though there is a checklist, uh, to reliably, mechanically and check for those things in an automated way, it, you can maybe hit 25 to 30 percent of, of the issues. So. You do need to do a bit of a manual review. Um, one of the things that that you can do, though, is, and I do this all the time, is go out to the local college or university and get people from the Center for Students with Disabilities and just get them to, you know, they'll be more than happy usually to volunteer to test things out for you. Talk to your users? Yeah, I know. It's crazy, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, it? Unbelievable. I mean, who would have who thought? You're a radical thinker. I know. I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> Well, this is fantastic. Thank you so much, Derek. Any last words to folks uh, thinking about accessibility out there? Just, you know, the, the main thing is just keep thinking about it because that, that's that's what we need is we need more people thinking about it all the time. So Write good code and think about your users out there. Exactly. Sounds like uh, good no matter what you're working in. Absolutely. Thanks, Derek. Thank you. Thank you.